Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is uh, Powers in Play, our monthly deep dive into international relations, not only in the Middle East, but also away from our own troubled region. And earlier this week, uh, the United States and other countries marked Martin Luther King Jr.'s day. And one of his famous quotes goes like this, the arc of the moral universe is long. And we are not going to talk about morality in politics, but about the arc, namely the American, Russian, Chinese domination, at least that's the way it is perceived today, in uh, global affairs. And uh, as we are uh, on the verge, or maybe on the verge, of uh, going from diplomacy into conflict into combat, perhaps, in places like the Ukraine, maybe in the Far East. We have our regular co-panelists, three retired colonels, Eran Lerman, Ruven Ben Shalom, and Miri Eisen, and our diplomat in residence, former consul general in uh, New England, um, a foreign uh, officer in the Washington Embassy and the foreign policy advisor to four different foreign ministers and one president, Shimon Peres, Nadav Tamir, welcome. Thank you for having me. Nadav, let's throw you um, into the uh, water. Uh, are the diplomats of today, Israelis and others, your former colleagues, adapted to today's challenges, which combine diplomacy, military affairs, the so-called gray zone um, in between economics, the digital uh, uh, space. Um, you uh, have uh, been in the Israeli Foreign Service uh, when requirements uh, were uh, different. But are today's diplomats in tune with what is required? Well, the short answer is no. Uh, governmental organizations tend to be very conservative. Uh, they find it very hard to change. Conservative, not in the political sense. And that's true to the foreign ministry as well. And I see it not, not only the Israeli foreign ministry. I see it also because I work with all the embassies here in Israel. And I see that many of the things that they do are based on old protocols and are completely irrelevant and anachronistic. Uh, there is change for the better, but it's much slower than the change in reality. Eran, you have been uh, associated not only with the Israeli Defense Forces, mostly the intelligence uh, branch, um, but also the National Security Council. Uh, is there uh, a difference between the way if we take uh, today's hotspot, 
Russia-Ukraine. Is there a difference between the way military officers and military intelligence officers uh, analyze such a question and what you see from the higher plateau of the national security staff? Look, uh, the, the, there's a reason why in practically every country, even where they did not exist before, uh, uh, national security staffs or councils or functions uh, have emerged one by one. Even Britain, which resisted the trend for years, you know, this is something that Americans do, but we don't. We have a foreign, we have a, uh, a foreign office and they know. But it turns out that you need to bring in uh, several strings of knowledge. Intelligence analysis is very focused, and intelligence officers look at what they've been told to look at. They hardly ever know how to ask new questions. Diplomats have their own uh, set of, of perceptions, and soldiers bring in uh, their own uh, concerns and their own way of assessing situations, such as the situation in Ukraine, where, for example, you see a total preponderance of Russian military might, but, and then you get into another string of information that has become more and more important, even for Israel, after years in which this was secondary, namely the economic, international economic uh, equations. Uh, Russia may be a, a dominant, powerful military monster, on clay feet. This is an economy smaller than that of South Korea. So if you, there are several ways of looking at things and you need somebody who, in, closer to the decision makers like National Security Council staffers who bring these strings together, who bring these people around the table together uh, and look at the various aspects of the same equation. And then you get a more balanced view as to for example, if Russia is so preponderant, why doesn't it conquer Kiev? Well, there are reasons. Just in defense of uh, the British, um, whom you mentioned, they were the first um, at the very uh, beginning of the 20th century to create what was called the Imperial, Committee for uh, Imperial, Imperial Defense. Yes. Uh, and the Americans um, uh, under Secretary of War Elihu Root also uh, emulated it. Of course, only after World War II did they uh, create the, the real integrated uh, uh, mechanisms for national uh, security. Mir Eisen, you also um, had a role in uh, public diplomacy, in uh, being a spokesperson um, for the government. How do you distill all of the inputs from the various departments, the uh, various disciplines into one coherent public posture? You don't. You have to be aware of the fact that today with Google Translate, everybody is reading everything and you cannot pose the way you could in the past different ideas to different audiences. What you said is translated. What you said is not only translated, but taken out of context in that translation, in that framing. So you are going to have, in addition to everything else of these ARC, America, Russia, China, you have three distinct different cultures, languages, and backgrounds. And when I read Russian or Chinese, and I am not Russian or Chinese, the messaging that they're doing in Russian to themselves, what I'm going to understand from that, let alone from Chinese, will be vastly different. 
One example to me, perhaps the strongest one, is the Chinese stance in the world. Do we understand what China says when they're saying it in the different Chinese? I mean, we say Mandarin, but in Chinese to their people, what do their people understand? What do we understand in what they're saying and in what they mean to have happen? And so this is an additional challenge that we have. So we have the perfect interpreter for us, a cross-cultural expert. And um, you have a lot of interface with um, Chinese uh, officials and uh, businessmen, as well as with Americans and others. How is such a crisis, the Russia-Ukraine crisis, uh, being perceived around the world with an emphasis on China? I think it, this is a great topic because uh, we have something that for 25 years at least that I've been dealing with it, we go to conferences and a lot of experts talk about these issues and we've been saying the world has changed, conflict has changed. We're very smart at conferences and studios like this. And for some reason, our organizations are still old school and not doing what they should be doing. This might be your own, your last um, yes, session here, but go, <laughs> go on. But, but I, I, th- I really think it's amazing. And, and when we're talking about the, the fundamental reasoning behind what Russia is doing now in Ukraine and what China wants from Taiwan, I think even there we miss it. So it's, it's, it's part of it as a cultural issue, of course. But... But a lot of it is because we've been maybe brainwashed in a way or we're used to thinking in terms of military might and interests. So Russia wants to conquer Ukraine. Well, it's much more than that. I think both China and Russia have this sense of being deprived of their place in the world. So in in a way, we go back to the fundamentals of being human, right? People want respect. Nations want respect. And nations that feel that they've been deprived from this respect maybe because of over-dominance of the United States for too many years, now want to bring back this respect. We have countries that are punching over their weight like Russia. And by the way, they do an amazing job. And we have this new world of technology and cyberspace that enables these campaigns to happen under a threshold, what we call the gray zone. Mm -hmm. And, And it's textbook. And I think it's unfolding before our eyes now. Textbook, okay? And they're doing it all by the book, yet we still interpret it sometimes in terms of military might. So... Is China going to take Taiwan? We could discuss this later. Are they going to attack Taiwan tomorrow? Well, textbook says absolutely not because they want to still play as a, as a uh, respectable uh, international player, right? But they want to do things and accomplish things under the threshold. So all that is unfolding. In a way, we should just open our eyes, read history, talk to them, hear what they say themselves say, and try to interpret this and maybe bring together these various realms. But... Uh, what is the uh, infrastructure as opposed to the superstructure in China? Is it the ancient Middle Kingdom and uh, what you have with the Chinese Communist Party? Is that just a regime of the day that one should understand ancient um, uh, Chinese traditions and culture before one uh, tries to analyze uh, Xi Jinping? I think so. But also I think, again, we make uh, basic mistakes. One of them is thinking that China is the same China that always was. It's amazing to see that every time they have a new regime, a new establishment, they rethink everything. Sometimes they have, right, we think that they consider all their leadership as sacred forever and ever. Not true. Once in a while, a leader comes along, he throws away everything, all the thoughts of the past, and of course tries to tie in old ancient thoughts, you know, to bring it, make, make it more accessible to the people. But we have to also look at thousands of years of history and, by the way, a lot of respect because many of the troubles of the world 
including the First World War, has to do with respect. We Israelis like to win. We want decisive batteries. We want to beat our enemies. Sometimes we have to understand that if you don't also respect them, like we did with the Egyptians that enabled the peace with the Egyptians, then, you know, we'll have it worse. So I think here we have to understand the ancient part of China, but understand this current regime and their agenda and their interest right now and the way they mean to achieve it, which, by the way, is not tomorrow morning. They have patience, unlike us. Nadav, you have been stationed... Um in Boston, in Washington, and at uh, headquarters here at the Foreign Ministry. Um, Reuven uh, Ben Shalom, Iran Lehrman, Mira Eisen uh, have not been stationed there. Of course, they spent time abroad. What is the added value of diplomats, um, mm-hmm. be they ambassadors, ministers, counselors, or consuls, um, now when you have so much information at your fingertips, You can uh, converse with anyone over the Internet. Of course, you also have some other duties, uh, lobbying, explaining to the locals. But as um, an organization built on cables, on cabling home uh, your reports, what, what is now the function and the added value of diplomats? Well, I, I very much want to connect to what uh, Reuven said, because I think one of the problems of the way Israel looks at diplomacy is that the role of diplomats is to speak. And I think the role of diplomats is much more to listen and to be able to understand the culture that they're in, the implications, but in a real way, with a lot of empathy. But this runs counter and to the Israeli character. I know, I know. This is one of the problems and many of the mistakes that we do is that we, we don't try to understand where the other is coming from. And for me, this is the basic in diplomacy. Uh, the ability to understand that maybe Iran is not just trying to, um, you know, to annihilate Israel, but they have their own anxieties. Maybe some of the things that they do has to do with them being a small uh, Persian uh, surrounded by Arabs and Turks or uh, Shia surrounded by a lot of Sunnis. We see everything through our prism And diplomats supposed to, to fix that. They're supposed to be on the ground, understand the real culture and the changes. And the changes are important. You are, you, sometimes we think that experts are those who know the history. But it, maybe it was completely true when the world was changing in a more linear way and you could extrapolate from the past to the future. Today that the change is so exponential, many of the assumptions that you do based on history are uh, misleading you because you tend to be stuck in a paradigm that is anachronistic. And I have many examples from my diplomatic career how we made those mistakes based on thinking that the past will remain. Iran, you had your so, academic career. Sounds like someone, someone we both heard saying the same thing, namely Shimon Peres. <laughs> of course. You had your own academic career before you joined or rejoined uh, the service. But many uh, officers... Um, until they reach the uh, ripe old age of 40 or 42, are not really steeped in civilian life. Um, of course, it, it has its uh, benefits as well as costs. Um, you are within the system. You don't really understand what um, the um, civilians around you are going through. And then all of a sudden you move Uh, as in your case, from the military 
to um, a government agency, but nevertheless a civilian one. Does that cause a shift in perceptions? It very much depends on, uh, on the individual. I, I have a very different view of the IDF, uh, uh, which miraculously, for reasons going back to the wisdom of Ben-Gurion, managed not to become a military. It's, you look at it, it's slovenly, it's not military really. It's not a caste and it's officers live, uh, I'm not talking about those, about those who, who are on the front line. No garrisons. End. Uh, but even, but uh, no, 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 no Israeli spent more than three weeks away from home, even at war, no, in no, under normal conditions, uh, since 48. And um, the, uh, mili- the military intelligence community that I lived in happened to be intellectuals, in, that happened to be, were, were intellectuals who happened to be in uniform and were not disconnected from the world around them read books, they, they lived with their families, they went home in the afternoon, they listened to the news, they, they were not uh, in a cocoon in any sense. So those of them under, intelligent enough were, I think, uh, aware that the world was changing, that some of the basic assumptions that uh, we held for years and uh, we, we saw collapsing in front of our eyes in 89, 90, 91, for example, just when, when the whole of history was thrown into fast forward. Uh, I don't think this is an... an and whole occupations uh, were at risk. Sovietologists. Uh, yes. I, uh, I personally reassigned one of my top uh, uh, Sovietologists, those used to measuring uh, uh, the distance from the head of Gorbachev to number four in the hierarchy or whatever, to look at the social and economic and, and, uh, and intellectual or identity questions of the new six Muslim nations, which, you know, Muslim turned out to be friends of Israel, one and all. One of them is a strategic ally of Israel and flew Israeli flags after the recent victory. So uh, um, uh, we learned a lot and we learned quickly. There's another dimension, Reuven, and that is, um, are you a small or relatively medium nation, like now almost 10 million Israelis. Uh, we started out at 650,000 and grew, as Nadav uh, said earlier, exponentially. Um, and uh, we are equal to or even larger than some uh, Central European uh, countries and Scandinavian ones. But nevertheless, we are not a great power. We are not a global power. Is there a difference in the way you um, shape your outlook as distinct from an American, a Russian, a Chinese, perhaps a German? I would say totally different. Uh, There is absolutely no way you can even comprehend what it means to be a global power. And I usually add with global responsibilities because it's not only like maneuvering a speedboat compared to an aircraft carrier. When you are in a speedboat like Israel, you can do everything on the fly. It also attunes to our culture. We can, inno- we can change, innovate. We, we don't adhere to any rules, right? You want to turn around, you turn around. If you want to turn around a, an aircraft carrier, you have to plan it six months in advance, maybe. So I think our perception... And you have to move it from the Atlantic to, pas- to the Pacific. Of course. The t- tyranny of distance. Of course. So we have to be modest. It's not only for the sake of being modest, but understand that when you're small, and we, I don't think we're, we're small, okay? I think you don't understand what it means to have global reach and global responsibility. Okay, we have our own interests, our own region. 
On the other hand, Israel is unique. And I'm not saying it here to complain of the overattention that we're getting, but we are unique because of our place in, in the Middle East and the world. The way even the great powers see us as a key component here. Part of the issues that, that we are maybe even world powerhouses that have to do with technology and cyberspace and drones and all of that. So, of, of course, we are a significant player. We may boast that we have a great air force, the best air force not in the world, in the Middle East. Okay, In, in Israel. In Israel, the best air force in Israel. Uh, so, and many times remember that our terminology is not modest, but, but certainly I think we have to invest a lot of energy to try to understand the powers and their interests and to connect to them in the right way. Not like in the past, not like who's our friend, who's our enemy. It doesn't work like that anymore. But how do we as a small player, like other nations do, connect and talk to everybody? And I relate to what you said, you know, as far as trying to understand everyone, relate to everyone. And you cannot, you can never say, why are you talking to him? I thought you were my friend. That does not work anymore. But there is an advantage in um, scale. Um, if you're small enough, you can get by in the margins. Um, you can tell the great power, mm. okay, you have your problems, but all I need is one-tenth of what you can give. So why don't you? Uh, Miri, have you encountered uh, One of the... Absolutely. One of the challenges I think that listening to all of us here right now is I wanted to zoom out again into the term of ARC, America, Russia, China. So here we are talking English and the strength of the language of English in the world. And here in Israel, we have Hebrew and maybe Arabic, but already different languages. And Russian. And, but and I want to get to the Russian. Right, I'm hard. Because one in six Israelis' native tongue is Russian, not English. One in four Israelis' native tongue is Arabic, not English and not Russian. And then we get to China, and it's a language that we need to work to learn. So when we have those challenges of looking at it through the economic idea, we should be able to have free trade, everything we want with China. But we have a strategic relationship with the United States. We have people within Israel whose native tongue is Russian, and they're through and through Israelis, who are going to have thrown at them that they speak Hebrew with the Russian accent, does that make them more Russian than more Israeli? What does it mean in our sense? And I put that out there because this is part of the challenge of where we define ourselves. By the way, uh, as a Western President man. Putin um, now sees the Russian-speaking uh, Israelis as, as an important block here. As a diaspora of Russia and not just as Jews under the law of return who arrived yeah. in Israel. And, and just take that into account. The next leader of the Likud party could be somebody from a Russian part background. I'm just giving in our own domestic politics, it certainly has a strong impact. And what does it mean when somebody comes from a different background, that cultural background that we're talking about? How does that play in? Will that change our outlook? But let's look at our neighbors, okay? Um, I was just looking around and I saw that Russia is not managing to sell weapons the way they used to in the past to their Middle Eastern allies, okay? So this is also something where you look around and go, who, where do you buy weapons from? The United States, Russia, perhaps China is not the same in that sense. But if you're not buying the Russian weapons because the American weapons have done better in the playground of the Middle East, that also impacts how it's viewed in and around because everything is viewed here through security eyes. You're correct, of course, uh, Miri, but um, then uh, when you speak about Russian-speaking uh, Israelis, you have to look even deeper. Those who came from Russia versus those who came from Ukraine. <laughs> you have, you have Ethiop Absolutely. Ethiopian 
migrants here. You have Eritrean ones. Absolutely. And now Tigray and all of that. But I'd like, I know, Nadav, like all of us, you brought uh, your answers from uh, back home, regardless of what I'm going to ask you. <laughs> but, but try tying into it a question which applies to both of you, yourself and Miri, old Boston hands. Um, you spend time in one of the bastions of the uh, uh, free world, of uh, academia, of uh, uh, old elites, and perhaps you have not noticed before your eyes as power shifts in the American uh, uh, instance, West and South. How, how does one conform to, to such upheavals especially if they are not so dramatic, so tectonic, but go slow over time? Well, first of all, I just want to say <clears throat> for the record that if I have a chance, I want to respond to some of the this things is the that you said. This is okay, the chance. Because we were speaking about Israel and how it is different from... So I think that one of the amazing things about the Israeli psyche is that we are schizophrenic. On the one hand, we we're able to take the Jew out of the shtetl, but not the shtetl out of the Jew. So we still feel that we're un, uh, under threat, like we're the smallest uh, country, while we are a regional superpower. On the other hand, we, we uh, uh, use our military uh, much more than needed, because when you have a great military, like a carpenter that has a hammer and see every problem as a nail. This and is what the two of you say, or only one? Nadav. One Nadav. And this, Nadav, and this has to do with uh, what uh, Iran said. I have a lot of respect to the Israeli IDF and to the, uh, and to the intellectuals that lead it. But still, people that come from the IDF are trained to be paranoidic. And, and uh, the fact that they also are leading most of the think tanks in Israel, you see uh, an approach that uh, always focus on threats rather than opportunities. And that is one of the tragedies, I think, of the Israeli decision-making process because of, of this You know that this, this is phenomena. called, not a think tank, but a tank think. A tank think. <laughs> and, and you are leading uh, uh, some troops too. There's always going to be but a question what the term security means also. Let's and I, add and I'm, I'm the from world. the tanks, as you said, so yes. I know what you're talking about. But I want to go back to, to the question that you asked. There is no doubt that there is a shift. There is no doubt that uh, uh, the unipolar moment has passed and the U.S. is in, in decline in compar comparing. Right now, I think the American uh, diplomacy is in, uh, or the American country in general is in post-traumatic stress disorder because of the Trump era, because Trump actually tried very um, successfully to stop this tradition that that U.S. is leading the free world. And uh, now that he, and actually in some ways, even to, to lead America to be a third world country when it comes to how you deal with science and other things. And my expectations that, that the Biden administration will correct that based on the fact that Biden is the most experienced foreign policy president since Bush the father, maybe. Very experienced with a great team. But because they're so in trauma of the domestic things, you see that they, they, don't, they don't really spend the time on foreign policy as uh, I would expect. And you see that, uh, you know, even in the things that they wanted to lead, let's say climate, they were not able to lead 
internally, domestically, they were not able to pass this big reform that Biden wanted to come with in Glasgow. They have a very, very problematic uh, majority, which is not a real majority when you have two senators that uh, are much more Republican than Democrats and don't let you do anything. Mountain so, and cinema. Exactly. So I feel that uh, even though... Uh, You know, right now we see some kind of, of a, a better situation of America with the world, but still, because of the domestic uh, fear for American democracy, uh, they have to deal with voting rights and the filibuster and other things, and they don't have enough um, attention to foreign policy, and we see it all over the world. Oven. I want to add to this, uh, again, you know, I never compare Israel to the United States and everything, but here as democracies, we have an issue of resilience, and... Uh, Also in Israel, we see some problems with uh, our determination and our willingness, for instance, to sacrifice for the things we believe in, uh, even looking forward to the next wars. Also the United States, we have to understand that. So when even when they talk about protecting Taiwan from China or what they're going to do if uh, Putin invades Ukraine, do they have the resolve and the commitment to really, are they going to go to war with China when, if and when China attacks Taiwan? So... So I think this is also an issue. So we you know, can sit back and say, oh, the Biden administration are, are, are post-traumatic stress control. But yes, but the, the will of the nation and their willingness to sacrifice funds and people, you know, that's an issue always to be considered. Mm -hmm. I need to step in with a little historical balance here. I think that the disconnect of the United States from the Middle East did not start from President Trump, started from President Obama. And we look at it in that sense, in that sense, when he was voted in to get out of wars that the United States was fighting at that time, and not to add in additional ones. And so in that sense, it's, it's a question again of that framing and of where they think have. But I do want to step into that aspect of the imperial and looking around because the United States under, I mean, because of the fall of the, of the, the Cold War and the Soviet Union in that sense stood alone. And it's been gradually stepping away. We're seeing the end of that process, but it's been a long-term process. When they stepped into the Middle East in the 2000s or in that sense, it was because of something that happened on the United States soil and not because of the things that were happening in the Middle East. So I want But coming out of the Middle East. Yes, but I think in that sense that here we are 20 years later and more from that horrific event, and that in that sense, as we look around now, I think that we need to look forward to China and Russia in their own ways, reinstating, calling out, understanding, because America has been stepping back for a long time. It's like that wave, they, 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 they were in it, And they're not right now. So let's look at what that means. So um, this is uh, powers in play, and we are heading into uh, the uh, last quarter. And um, I'd like to ask you, Iran, in addition to what you wanted to comment on, we are talking about this arc, the American-Russian-Chinese domination uh, of the scene. Are any two of them going to converge to ally themselves against the third one, or are they going to carve up the world? Well, first of all, increasingly, I tend to think that it's very elegant arc. So was BRICS. But uh, the BRICS were thrown and uh, no windows were broken because, uh, the, you know, Brazil and Russia and India and China share nothing, not to mention South Africa, have very little. So it was India, not Israel. In the break. <laughs> well, uh, here, here comes in, uh, but uh, I would say Aki, because India is not a negligible 
element in this equation. It, it will soon surpass China as the largest in population. Bring your, old acro- your own acronym. Leave, but, leave, leave Ark uh, alone here. But, uh, and, and here we, we do have, actually, Israel has shown great uh, uh, precise, if you wish, in linking up with India at a very early stage, uh, making this a very significant alliance. Recently, India has come, the Indians, not Israel, have come with the idea of a, what they call a Western Quad including the immense economic power of the UAE, which is a mid, uh, maybe a very small country uh, territorially and, and demographically, but punches way above its weight in other respects, and Israel as a strategic partner. That, that's language we never heard before. Israel uh, needs to really rethink, I agree, that it needs to constantly rethink its place, uh, but not necessarily in terms of just in our own... But region. do you see Russia and China ganging up now, against the United States? Well, that's the present tendency because the uh, hate of the Americans is de- and, and the West is deeply ingrained in the Russian elite. And in, in China, there's a hun- the hundred years of humiliation that began with the opium wars and went all the way to the... Always blame the British. Uh, always blame the British, true enough, and with some reason, f- frankly. But uh, Americans the, also were, but at, took at the, their own independence from the British, so they are on the same uh, so page. Did we, so did we. But at the end of the day, um, I think that if the Russians look down the road, given their vulnerabilities, if they gang up with the Chinese, they're going to end up as a Chinese satrapy, as an adjunct of Chinese power. And not no amount of nuclear warheads would protect them from becoming economically subservient to Beijing. The only way out of this is to return to the idea that Jim Baker threw around back in 1991 from Vancouver to Vladivostok, a commonality of interest. Um, I think that, uh, I don't know if Putin is up to it, he may be, he may need to be assured that NATO has no intention to expand to the Dnieper. Ukraine is a bridge too far for NATO, but something overarching, which is uh, already in existence in a sense, because that's uh, the OSCE is exactly that, um, could actually become a template for the future. Well, Ruin, perhaps um, instead of or in addition to uh, Vancouver to Vladivostok, from the Bering Strait to the Black Sea, because um, while Russia is a Eurasian country, the United States uh, is really global. Uh, we didn't even mention mm-hmm. the Pacific uh, uh, islands, uh, um, uh, which are either uh, territories of the United States or have bases uh, there. So what's your view regarding what Henry Kissinger used to call triangulation, where you have three centers of power and one may try to play the other two against each other? Mm-hmm. Well, first, what's interesting is we mentioned various places and we say Russia and China. I, I think, uh, I don't want to be condescending, but I think most people in the world imagine Russia here somewhere and China here somewhere, but they share a border, a long border. Okay? 4,100 kilometers. That's incredible. So when you share a border, of course, you share interests and, you know, it's not like some faraway entity. 
Now, also, I think uh, our, our tendency is they, to... They already fought along the Amur uh, back in the late 1960s. It, it reminds me that the Mongolians say they have a third neighbor policy. <laughs> they are looking for a third neighbor. Another, another thing is I think we tend to see them as naturally aligned with basic communist ideas. Was not always so. You mentioned Kissinger. The United States knew how to put a wedge between them. But for the last 20 years, they've been slowly, slowly collaborating militarily. Look at the headlines from recent weeks. It came to a level, I think, that they never had before, almost interoperability, right? And the fact it was they could talk, but their systems couldn't talk. I think their systems are talking now. The Chinese, uh, and they even use uh, Russian equipment, Sukhoi's S-300. So we have to, we have to look at this issue and, and take this into consideration. There's no question that they are ganging up on the United States, even overtly. Their rhetoric is, we're doing this to get it back at them, at those Americans. Who do they think they are? So is this going to lead to a, a military confrontation? Because of the nature of warfare now, I don't think so right now. But certainly they're ganging up diplomatically and to promote their various interests. We are getting uh, near the end of this program. So please, uh, could uh, each of you give a short assessment of um, where we are going. Are we headed toward conflict or cooperation? Nadav. I think that uh, we will have a hybrid. <laughs> um, it will not be, uh, you know, a third world war, but, uh, but we will see conflicts, and uh, uh, many of them based on the fact that today warfare is not interstate, but, uh, you know, uh, other players... Um, and that other players will use all kind of uh, opportunities to steal. Uh, so um, on the other hand, uh, economically, the world is more uh, connected and more uh, reliant on each other. You know, one of the problems with Taiwan and China is the Chinese economy very much relies on the Taiwanese and vice versa. And the same with America and China, that, uh, you know, that they rely on each other economically. Uh, but so I think we will see conflict, but it will not be interstate, but it will be uh, non-state actors. And we will see more cooperation uh, in terms of the, you know, globalization uh, continuing in other means. Miri? I think we are in conflict. I don't think that we're in the future. I think that that's where we are right now. We define conflict for some reason as only being in hardcore military terms. We are in cyber attacks. We are in different types of realms that have to do with conflict and that are already impacting the arena. Certainly when I say the words Russia and China and the United States and in the Middle East and further. So that for me, as I look towards the future, I just think that the realm of conflict has changed. I, I'm not sure that the term hybrid is the term that I would use. It's most definitely diversification of what the thing mean, meaning, again, let's not just give it the one definition. It's either conflict or cooperation. I think that both are happening right now and will continue to do so, but that the conflict level will raise. Moving. I think it's a negative trend. Uh, we even see uh, nuclear saber rattling in the last few weeks, which is unbelievable. The Russians actually speaking about putting nuclear warheads five minutes from the United States. Of course, it's not going to be a direct threat, but that's amazing that we're actually in that playbook, that line in the playbook. So I think it's we have, again, a lot of technology that enables these attacks. The Russians and the Chinese use tactics that other democracies do not use. We didn't talk morality here, but let's face it, subversion, 
and we're talking about false flag attacks underway, maybe now in Ukraine. The, the, it's certainly a negative trend, and I agree it's not going to be a regular war that will break out. Tanks are not going to storm Taiwan. Um, well, it's not, I'm not sure it's hybrid, but two things happen to be true at the same time. Uh, on one hand, military power is as important as it has ever been. Anyone, the happy assumption that some people latched onto in the 90s, that from now on your economic production is going to determine your place in the world rather than your military might. No, that's not the case. The United States understands it. The Chinese exercise the muscles, the Russians, and so do we. And by the way, sometimes power, can, the exercise of power leads to friendship. Our Gulf friends rely on us to, uh, to, to use our strength. Uh, and that's why we have new friends. At the same time, I would agree that as long as economic interdependence holds, and if we don't go to, into this catastrophic idea of decoupling, um, this will restrain war in the larger sense. So 10 seconds to, to each of you, the uh, careers you had, are they still going to be with us in the future? The um, profession of arms for you colonels, um, is there going to be a future for military officers, Iran? Yes, but they do need to, at some point in their career, le learn about the other elements at play and adjust their views accordingly. Moving. I was a pilot. There will be no more pilots because we'll have robots, but I'm, now I'm a military diplomat, and diplomacy is now... Miri is a woman. There will always be women. No Absolutely. replacement. And the intelligence and the assessments. Not everybody's an expert. One word. Yes Diplomacy no? will remain, but it has to be much more um, interdisciplinary uh, with economy, with technology, with military understanding. So thank you, Nadab Tamir, Miri Eisen, Ruven Ben Shalom, and Iran Lerman. This has been Powers in Play. Be back in a month. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.